Now on BBC Radio 4, Fry's English Delight, with Stephen Fry on a much-loved but perhaps endangered art, Conversation. Especially in the winter when it was freezing. Coats on the beds. Coats on the beds. There was no coats on up there. It's the improvised jazz of language. (laughs) It was all on our beds. And the lads used to shout, Mum, Alan's pulled the arm off the harder down. (laughs) Two or more performers, sparring, jockeying, ushering in and out solos, complex, rewarding, intimate, spontaneous. I know, but but we used to go on school trips. I mean, how did you pay for them? This is Elaine and her mother, Betty, jamming for the Radio 4 listening project. What a medal. Everybody works, everybody's got good jobs. Yeah. You do me, you must have done something right. Yeah. Now it's our turn to look after yeah. you. And you are, you're wonderful. Whether it's water cooler banter, or in Elaine and Betty's case, an intimate exchange between mother and daughter, our daily conversations shape who we are and how we perceive our fellow human beings. But conversation is more than this. It's a mind-reading game, a dance, a kind of mutual grooming. The kind of thing you see lower primates doing in wildlife documentaries, but without the eating of insects. Philosopher and historian Theodore Zeldin has spent years having conversations about conversation. If you look at the dictionary and see what conversation has meant in the past, it has meant intimacy living with someone, even sexual intercourse, even criminal activity, acquaintance, social gathering. In other words, it is everything to do with relationship between people. Entering into the mind of another person, entering into somebody's skin and discovering what other people feel. So it improves, it it makes it possible for two people to get closer to each other, to appreciate each other, and in that process to understand themselves better, because the way that another person interprets one reflects on the way one interprets oneself. It is something which has to be practised, and it involves much more than skill in the manipulation of words. All the same, the manipulation of words is where we all have to start. And we learn pretty fast that social situations have specific sets of rules. Gabriella's party, can we all have to say banana? <laughs> the rule here being that banana has been established as socially acceptable, yet daringly humorous. What's your name? Jonathan. No, a banana. A banana. <laughs> what do you snug up to? A banana. <laughs> what, what, what do you sleep in? A banana. No, I sleep in an apple. Ah. Jonathan, you have letters and colours and, and, and I have numbers. The game, as you heard it, is ironically and delightfully called Speaking English. Note, too, how the advanced conversationalist risks substituting apple for banana to help things along before Jonathan and his friend wisely decide to get on with something involving a proper game, with things. Remember listening to adults as a child and thinking how dull they were just 
talking. Blah, 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 blah. Why didn't they do something? Well, as humans develop, conversation gradually replaces play as our primary social tool. And with it, we develop a more complicated system of rules. And so from the nursery, we graduate to London's own school of life for grown-ups. They run courses in how to have better conversations. I think people talk, they don't have conversations sometimes. <laughs> it requires this curiosity towards the other one. I think naturally I'm more of a listener than a talker. They attend because they feel there's a famine of quality conversation in modern life. Roman Krisnarik, imparter of conversational skills at the school. The average couple talks to each other for only about 35 minutes a week, and the lack of conversation between um, married people and between partners is the major cause of relationship breakdown in the modern world. Sometimes they have problems talking at work, sometimes they'd like to find new ways of um, energizing their friendships. I think it's about being adventurous and spontaneous. It is about saying things you haven't said before. It's about encountering new people and new ideas, ideas that can help change the way you live. So conversation is about communion, but it's also about adventure, like stumbling upon a beautiful corner of a foreign city at night and then never quite knowing how to get back there in daytime, as the philosopher Alain de Botton has described it. Fee Glover is, therefore, a professional adventurer. As a broadcaster, she's known for making conversation rather than interviewing. Here she is doing that with the singer and actress Barbara Dixon. Barbara says of her own reputation that I think there are people all over who think of a woman with great big curly hair singing I know him so well, but people do not know me so well. They do not. Whatever you do, don't call her Babs. It's Barbara Dixon. <laughs> Hello, morning, Barbara. I'm glad you got that yes, out of the way. I did. I'm reminding it you. is a very different style of yours, isn't it, to that of the average average interviewer. Certainly, you, you wouldn't do that on Desert Island Discs or you wouldn't do it on a TV talk show. No, that's very true. And what we were trying to do was to elicit from people things that the listeners would never have heard but not do it by throwing darts at them and waiting for them to pop. One of the interesting things about Barbara Don't Call Me Babs was mm -hmm. she had had a really dreadful time actually with her performance about probably about 15 years ago now where she had been uh, gripped with a kind of stage fright and uh, exhaustion. It was all intermingled and it had prevented her from performing for a while. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting was that it's certainly not the first thing that, that I think most people know about Barbara Dixon and also she returned to it with absolute aplomb and and I thought well it's probably quite interesting now to be able to talk about that with the benefit of hindsight you know and in a very honest way and not in a salacious I found no. a weakness in you <laughs> but actually just as an interesting how did that happen and why did that happen and you know then what happened afterwards and we did and we had a great conversation just about the nature of performing and then why you did it and she said this lovely thing and, and this is what I feel is important about conversation 
and I don't know whether you agree, but she said that she realised that people came to see her because they liked her, and it's such a simple thing, but actually as soon as she got the fact that they just loved the music, she could kind of release herself a little bit. Let herself carry go. She, however, is someone who is used to being interviewed because yes. she's very well known, but you also interview, as it were, members of the public, ordinary people. Ordinary All folk. the time. Pe- yes. Things have happened to them, sometimes quite traumatic and terrifying, sometimes amusing, sometimes almost too unbearable to listen to. So how do you prepare for that? Well, I don't think you can, do you? I mean, you mm. meet loads and loads of people um, in normal life who probably want to talk to you, and they yeah. probably tell you things that you're quite surprised. You know, you have a warm presence, and I would imagine it's quite easy for people to tell you things. And, and I don't think you can prepare a conversation that goes point number one leading yeah. to point number two leading to point number three with someone who isn't um, on that kind of razzle-dazzle of the showbiz scene. Right. Why, why would any right. conversation have that form to it? And you've really just got to listen, haven't you? Absolutely. And those are really what we would call conversations, not interviews. And in fact, it so happens the BBC is running this big in-conversation thing with the... British with, Library, the Listening yeah, Project. But, uh, yeah. uh, and they just sit and chat. And it is absolutely absorbing. It is, isn't it? And the secret to that is the listening. And... That doesn't mean, does it, that there's just one person who's not contributing as much to the conversation. There's not one person no. who's just sitting back, but you can hear the listening because yeah. people are allowing each other to it's say things they wouldn't normally two say. Two interlocutors, not one interviewer yes. and one interviewee. Yes. And um, you, you feel you, you're a bit like Alan Bennett on the top of a bus. You're actually able to hear real people talk and, and note it and note the idiolect, the particular ways people speak. And also, I think, um, the courage, the honesty and the innate intelligence and sympathy that the average person has when they're in a relaxed enough position to be able to talk freely with someone that they trust. The reason why some of these conversations are so poignant is because they're they're the hoverflies that have danced around people's lives for years. But by putting people in a radio studio and saying, well, actually, this is what you're going to talk about, giving them a certain amount of time, um, giving them uh, a really good kind of run up to it. So they know that there is one thing that is coming up that they need to listen to the other person talking about. I think that's what creates the magic. There are people who who are called good conversationalists, you know, Oscar Wilde, Samuel Johnson, people like that, were famed for their their art at the dinner table, almost orators, you might say. And now, is that being a conversationalist or is that someone who's just hogging hogging the, the table? Theodore Zeldin. What one calls a good conversationalist in the past has been someone who charms, who amuses, who says the right thing, who can be uh, humorous or who can show respect and uh, appreciation of other people. In other words, who has social skills. But that is something different from understanding other people. What I've just described is a kind of theatrical skill. And I'm interested much more in a skill of understanding other people and being understood and then beyond that being able to use um, that understanding to do something that two people can do which they could not do alone. So empathy is where the skill lies. Roman Krisnarik. In British history, 
Dr. Johnson in the 18th century was seen as the greatest conversationalist of his era. But he was someone who was really good at very clever conversation, at little epigrams and little quips. And I think that was disastrous for the history of conversation because his little quips and epigrams actually stopped conversation rather than opened it out. If I wanted to talk to someone about my emotions and things that were difficult in my life, I certainly wouldn't have gone to Dr. Johnson. Perhaps we're creating inflated expectations of the art of conversation, that it has to be expert, has to be witty, has to be adventurous or therapeutic or significant. A lot of conversation is quotidian, routine, straightforward, repetitive, banal, mundane. Everyday family conversations may have an important social dimension, but it doesn't make them noteworthy, except when they're dramatic. Like when someone's been kicked... Out on me ass. No, just like that. Wasn't me that walked out on her, was it? I did everything I could to make the relationship work and that. Yeah, but it means you're back for good, right, Dad? I mean, where's the... The unmistakable bellowing voices of the Gallagher family in the TV drama Shameless. The Waltons on Acid is how screenwriter and creator of Shameless, Paul Abbott, has described them. All property is theft. Yeah, except you don't own any property. Exactly, Philip. Conversation for me, I invent voices for a living. And so I'm really interested, fascinated by the patterns of people's speech and how much you can detect in the tiniest, the most microscopic, invisible piece of oxygen between two people. And you go, how come I know that means something? You know, cycling and you hear 12 second sound bursts uh, and just imagining what they're 12-second sound burst might have been about. And you've, you haven't heard the beginning of anything, the end of anything, not just a fragment of the middle, and imagining how that conversation builds, looking for truth. And I've become really good at it. Uh, I can hear more when there are a lot of conversations. I can track about seven or eight at once and just walk through five, you know, that many families in a, like the Trafford Centre in Manchester and just gathering patterns without concentrating on the words. The words kind of get in the way sometimes. People give more personality away in patterns than they do in the words they choose to say. And I'm obsessed with forcing myself to describe those things on paper. And that's one key to the dramatist's art, hearing beyond the words and listening out for the telling patterns of conversation. And let's not forget, Shameless is based on Paul Abbott's own rich conversational heritage. Conversation at home was, I mean, it was flooded. It was saturation. Ten people lived in the house, and I can't remember how many animals, in four rooms. And there would be a constant turnover of visitors, and it became so loud. You know, you bring down the fire curtain, and you just, you have to listen to it differently. That's too much. I think getting good at reading patterns was, a, was an element of self-defence that kicked in. I think the reason I wrote Shameless was because I'd never heard the likes of it on TV. And it's another family ritual that shapes our patterns of conversation. We've noted before how evolution has placed the human word processor and food processor in such close proximity. Food and talk are the greatest of companions. So let's now take our place at dinner with someone who has spent her life in conversation in the kitchen and around the table. I'm Claudia Roden and I'm a food historian. 
In my world, that is in Egypt when I was a child, we learned to converse around the table. It was really a fight to talk and we shouted. And uh, when we came to England, we used to talk so loudly and shout so much that the people next door thought we were fighting and they would come in and knock at the door and say, are you all right? So food was really the way you got together. Talking to each other was the main entertainment. And part of your uh, being invited was you had to offer something and the offering was what you had to say. And if you had something new to tell, you know, that was really an advantage. So at suppers with the Roden family, the vital natural ingredients involve both food and talk. It's a ritual. Food certainly gives an importance about you being together because you're together to enjoy and to have pleasure. So it does put you in a frame of mind. And I think also because of the way the meal takes its course, and that you have different dishes and suddenly you have another course and people start making some remark about it. And so there are different levels of the conversation regulated a bit by the meal. And of course, in different parts of the world, food regulates talk and perhaps language in curiously different ways. When I research food, I'm always invited in their kitchen and I found that when I'm in their kitchen, we are very intimate and you'll tell all. But also outdoors, for instance, in Egypt around the meze, people go and have a meze with a little drink, arak or raki or beer. It is this enjoyment of just sheer uh, leisure of or it's almost a spiritual moment of sitting there in company and not saying much. Or else then, of course, in Spain, there is the tapas tradition where people move from bar to bar, but they go there really to meet people and talk and laugh. But this thing that food, uh, by eating something, it creates a bond. Fee, is, is that how things work around your table at home? No, because I've got a three-year-old and a and an early seven-year-old, even, ah, so it's not. Yes. <laughs> I spend most of my time just either nagging or wiping, wiping or nagging, <laughs> nagging or wiping. But it's a vision of how I'd like our family mealtimes to be. And, and, I mean, doesn't it sound just utterly, utterly delightful, that marriage of food and conversation and Absolutely. warmth and a sense that you're... And, you know, your spirit is being fed at the same time. For that to go out of our lives would be disaster. The ritual, the social bond of sitting around and eating and, and conversing as a family. Talking while you're eating is one of the few times when you don't have to do either thing, um, you know, from start to finish without taking a break. I mean, it's true, isn't it? You yeah. pause, you eat, you pause in the talk, and, you know, that's Absolutely. how it all mingles together. And, no, I mean, I, th- I entirely agree it would be awful if we had as many first-time conversation users as we do have first-time cutlery users. I think <laughs> well, indeed. talking of cutlery, of course, I, I, I grew up in a, in a world which was regarded now as rather old-fashioned. My parents used to have dinner parties with, um, you know, in black tie in which the women went 
out uh, at the end of the meal and the men stayed behind and drank port and, really? and smoked cigars and the women went to the drawing room. Now, I, I, my mother always told me that this was simply a Victorian tradition because women just did not like drawing attention to the fact that they went to the lavatory. And so the idea was, we'll leave the men with their cigars and port to talk. And we'll about go for a wee. It. And what they do is basically <laughs> go and have a wee rather than that the, it was a sexist thing that women were not welcome in a room where politics was being discussed. Do you ever find, though, because, you know, you, you're a great conversationist yourself, but do you ever find that people are slightly kind of fawning over your conversation? You know, they're loath to jump in just because you Gosh. probably do know the answers to more things than most. I, I hope not. I try and usually ask questions. That's the best way to get people talking is to ask questions. There's a thing that was told to me by a member of the royal family, which he said makes us the same class of person as as those escort girls who work in clubs in London for tired businessmen. When a girl sits down at his table, says, shall we have some champagne? And he says, it's a good day. so yeah, where are you from? Uh, well, I'm from uh, from Croydon. Croydon? I went to Croydon once. It's a very nice place. What do you do exactly? I'm an accountant. Accountant? Now, I've never really known what an accountant is. And literally, you can keep the conversation going. And the royal family is the same thing. They're opening a sewage works in Doncaster. And the foreman is showing them round. And it was fascinating. It was marvellous. So how does that work exactly? Um, well, it, it, it filters the water that, that comes through that main pipe. That main pipe? So that's, how does that exactly? You literally just say the, the, the last thing. Yeah, so you're never letting the ball drop. You never yes. let the ball drop. Um, yes, and so it's, a, it's a technique. I'm but going a, to use that. Yeah. <laughs> a technique, you say? Yeah. <laughs> Once yeah. it's a technique, of course, it stops being free-flowing, organic and human, doesn't yeah. it? That, that's one thing. But the aim of anyone's studying a foreign language is to sound natural. Uh, and these students here are struggling with the idea of English conversation. There's something missing. Are they trying too hard, perhaps? Oh, what you mean is... Uh, it records some your picture and show it is improved. You do recycle. Like... Uh, right? Like... In in the restaurant, they put many pictures on their wall like ah, this. <laughs> Clearly, they're having a conversation there. Even if you couldn't quite catch the subject matter, it was about designing the perfect recycling bin, by the way. And as student improvisers, they were, to be fair, trying to encourage each other. So what's missing? English language teacher... Darren Oakley. The question is, what is natural conversation? Because for me, what they were doing was a natural conversation, but it wasn't varied. The problem is that their conversation isn't varied. So they were communicating, they understood each other, and they were checking what the other person was saying, so they were giving their opinion, but there wasn't the variety that we would expect in a normal conversation. That variety is the key to the conversationalist's art. I don't just mean recycling the subject when things flag. I mean within a subject like recycling bins, spontaneously using the flotsam and jetsam of language to punctuate, encourage, share. In jazz, it's a, it's a um, fill. Hmm? Yeah? Like that. So you get expressions like thinking, um, or just making a sound, or um, using what I'm doing now, because I can't think what to say and how to answer the question. So I will make sounds to indicate to you that I'm still thinking. Whereas if I just leave a silence, it gets quite uncomfortable. But here is a challenge for more advanced native speakers. Embark on a conversation with a stranger whose background and outlook on life are completely different from your own. 
The proverbial stuck-in-a-lift scenario never happens in real life, of course. That's where conversation can become, well, downright awkward, or perhaps original and vivid. Our conversation philosopher Theodore Zeldin has championed exactly this kind of stranger interaction using something called the menu of conversation. It's a menu which looks like a uh, restaurant menu and it's playful in the sense of it divides the subject in the same way as a restaurant does between fish and meat. But under each heading you get a number of questions and the purpose of this is to encourage people to talk about things that are really important to them. And whenever we, we do this in every social situation, from people of the very peaks of power to, to the homeless, and they all say that they value being able to talk about what is most significant for them, and that they very seldom have time to do it. We are verses and rhythms, couplets and rhymes, in but no, most conversations, in fact, last a very short time. Um, and we have statistics on this subject, and only a minute percentage um, lasts more than 15 minutes. And my view is that a conversation only gets going after perhaps an hour or so. With words that must be said, can analysis be worthwhile? And at the end of it, they feel they've made a friend, they have overcome the, the barrier which exists between people, because the great um, originality of our time is that people are mysterious, and so you cannot use the same tactics with every person. So, bang go the icebreakers. Going on holiday this year, sir? Have you come far? How was the B303 at Junction 14? Le Menu Zeldin calls for full, penetrative conversation like this from the school of life. Which is the alter ego that expresses itself most prominently in your life? That's a really good question. Try that one when you're standing at the bus stop tomorrow morning. Or a clown. On the other hand, conversations have changed the world. Don't underestimate the power of conversation. We know that Watson and Crick spent uh, many years in conversations which produced the model of the DNA. And likewise, we know that quantum physics was born in partly in Copenhagen, which was a place where people engage in conversation all the time and in all subjects of knowledge. The conferences which people hold are most valuable, not for the speeches which people make, but what goes on in the corridors when people can't understand each other and stimulate each other um, in private conversations. And if you think about memories of people, it is always something that they have said to you. Yes. I think it's always a conversation that you remember. And not necessarily that kind of enormous, great big, you know, I found out that in fact my mother was my aunt or, you know, something like no, that. No, it doesn't have to be a revelation. Not or, at all. Or, or a philosophical insight. No, it's just something that touched you, that stayed with you, that made you laugh. Yes. I remember who taught me this, but it would have been somebody at school uh, had a really lovely lesson about conversation and uh, um, and it was uh, the Bob rule, beware of because. <laughs> and it's the theory that as soon as you use the word because in the opener of your conversation, uh, you will have denied the person listening the opportunity to join in. And I'll give you an example. I'll ask you a question. 
Where are you going on your holidays uh, this summer, Stephen? Because I'm going to <laughs> Suffolk, and then we've got a... And it works every time, actually. As soon as you put because... And the superficial signs In the borders of our lives And we have to leave that conversation dangling because another rule of conversation here on Radio 4 is that they must have time limits. But you can hear more of that one between Fee and Stephen on the Radio 4 website. Fry's English Delight is a testbed production for BBC Radio 4. The producer was Sarah Cutton. And next week, the story of X. Now, Edie Stark looks at another aspect of being a twin. Today, how can you be identical but with different sexualities? When people meet me, they go, Oh, you're a twin? Really? And you're gay? Yes. But your brother is straight? Oh! You can pretty much predict the questions that you'll be asked. Uh, yeah, so the beer delivery is coming tomorrow morning. Uh, not quite sure what time. Nicholas Rogans and his partner took over a rundown pub in East London a few